Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Flourish FM. In this episode, Nick and I talk to journalist and best-selling author Annie Murphy-Paul about how the extended mind can help us flourish. Annie is an acclaimed science writer whose works appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Scientific American, Slate, Time Magazine, and the Best American Science Writing, among many other publications. She's the author of several books, including Origins, which was reviewed in the cover of the New York Times Book Review and selected by that publication as a notable book, and The Cult of Personality, hailed by Malcolm Gladwell in the New York as a fascinating new book. Our most recent book on which this episode focuses is The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain, published in 2021. Annie's spoken to audiences around the world about learning and cognition, and her TED Talk has been viewed by more than 2.6 million people. Nick, what were some highlights for you from this conversation? Yeah, I think having Annie turn this sort of larger, somewhat historically philosophical idea of an extended mind into something that was more consumable and tangible will be really great for our listeners. And I think was really great for you and I to be able to take this idea, right, that the mind doesn't really generate anything on its own. It's all receiving from the outside. It's stuck in this sort of black box that is the skull. And, and you know, we receive information from sensory experiences is really important because that led to kind of the three core points for today. Embodied cognition, how we think through movement and sensation, situated cognition, how we think and perceive based on physical space, especially natural spaces, and then distributed cognition, how we think through and with and because of groups and our relationships. But most importantly, taking all three of those types of cognition and say, okay, how do we do that? How do we better leverage that and turn it into action steps that can help people improve their lives? And I thought Annie did a really excellent job of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I love talking about this, talking about the extended mind, this classic concept in the philosophy of mind. And I've only been used to talking about it in kind of philosophy seminars and talking about it with uh, brilliant journalist and author writing for general audience, bringing these ideas out into kind of the public domain in a, in a wonderful way was really fascinating. And it was great to connect this up with human flourishing. So this is our conversation with Annie Murphy-Paul. Hope you enjoy it. Hey there. Hi, Annie. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing well, thanks. Pleasure and an honor to meet you finally. Oh, that's nice. Great. Then let's jump into it. So... Annie, I'm always curious about motivations for writing books in general. It's obviously a really big commitment. Any sort of serious author I talk to says it'd take them at least a good year, two years, something like that, maybe many more in some cases. So I'm curious about your motivations for writing The Extended Mind. Obviously, you know, our show's about human flourishing. We're going to get into that. I think there's a lot of really beautiful connections between different types of cognition or The Extended Mind and human flourishing. But why write this book? Is it underpinned by just sort of a general desire to help people live better lives? Well, thanks for that question, Nick. It actually took me quite a bit longer than one year, (laughs) and it was a long and winding road. So yes, it, it is a project oriented towards human flourishing, but in a particular way that changed over the time that I was writing the book. Okay. So. Initially, I started out thinking that I was writing a book about learning, about the science of learning. And I got into that for, I think all writers to some extent do me search, you know, and I got into it for personal reasons. I had children who were starting school and I was so fascinated by how they were learning and how their teachers were teaching them. And there was at the same time, this exploding sort of 
scientific literature on how we learn, exploring how we learn and discovering all kinds of things. You know, learning and teaching is obviously an age-old human activity, but science was discovering so many new and exciting and interesting things about how that process works. So I set out to write a book about the science of learning. And along the way, I discovered that there was not one big idea that could pull together my book, which is really something I look for as a writer and as a reader too. I like a big idea that is transformative, that changes the way that you see things. And I wasn't finding it in the science of learning. It seemed more like a collection of techniques and approaches, you know, and I eventually came to think that's because that there was no grand unified theory of learning because there was no grand unified plan or design for the brain. You know, the brain is this kludgy patched together product of evolution that is oriented to our survival and not to the kind of learning that goes on in schools and workplaces. So while that is an interesting insight in itself, and and uh, there are lots of great books about the science of learning out there, thankfully, I didn't have to write them. I was looking for an idea, as I say, a big idea that could pull together all this really fascinating research that I was coming across and, and reporting on in speaking to the scientists themselves. And I found that idea in a philosophy journal. It was an article titled The Extended Mind that came out in 1998 by two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers. And the very first line of that article grabbed me and it really has not let me go. And that was, as I say, years ago now. And the first line of it was, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? And that to me was such a provocative and generative kind of question in part because it would seem to have like an obvious answer or initially a sort of conventional answer, which would be, well, the mind stops at the skull. You know, it's more or less identical with the brain and end of story. But Clark and Chalmers were arguing that, no, that's not the case, that the mind extends beyond the skull into the sensations and movements of our bodies, into our physical surroundings and settings, into our relationships with other people and into the tools that we use. And all these things are actually resources, outside the brain resources that we think with. And that to me was, as I say, it was a really provocative idea, but it also seemed really useful. Like if we could, if we understand our thinking to happen, not just in here, but out here in the world, that means there's so many new ways to improve our thinking that have to do with improving and becoming more skilled at using these extra neural resources. It doesn't have to just be about training our brain or making peace with whatever brain our inheritance gave us. There were so many opportunities to think better using this idea of the extended mind. So that was the real pull for me. Okay. Okay. Well, we're going to get into, I have a lot of questions about the how-to piece. That's always been, I think, a a particular challenge around some of these areas, but really love the description you just gave. It makes a lot of sense now, having read the book and then going back through it a, a second time, the way you framed it out into sort of these three different parts that are really unified by this phrase, the extended mind. It's good to know where that came from and how you arrived at it. So my PhD is in educational psychology. John and I are both longtime educators. So you hit the nail on the head in terms of the science or the many types of science around learning and, and how fragmented those can be. What I think is so nice about the book that's very, very clear from the get go is you can't think of not just learning, but cognition in general as this, oh, it's, it's poured into the mind 
as if like a sage on the stage, I just receive it, process it, and then kind of spit it back out. There's a lot of other ways, right, of, of having our, our cognition impacted. So excited to explore each of those kind of part by part. Before we do that, because you mentioned, yeah, in a, in a long way around, kind of interested in, in flourishing, helping people live better lives. Yet the particular way you think about human flourishing? Oh, gosh. We ask everybody, so I got to put you on the spot. <laughs> a particular way that I think about human flourishing. Well, I know how my own process of trying to encourage okay. my own flourishing goes. Again, it's maybe I'm <laughs> making everything so personal. It's it's more me search, but I find that it's really important to sort of feed your mind and your heart and your spirit in the sense of seeking out and I'm a you know I'm a researcher so I this is my skill and I guess this is where I go in terms of even pursuing flourishing but I am always on the lookout for books podcasts guides along the road who connect to some particular aspect of human flourishing that I'm thinking about and I think it's such a, I mean, again, I, I I rely on my researcher skills so much, and I think it's such a useful skill to have to be good at finding exactly the material that's going to feed you at that moment. And so that's I, that's led me to all different kinds of places, including this philosophy journal where I found the idea of the extended mind, but also to places like Buddhism. And I think the extended mind has a lot of interconnections with Buddhist thought so, yeah, I, I think of human flourishing as almost a process of nourishing oneself and giving oneself the sort of raw material to to turn into flourishing as it expresses itself in one's life. All right. Thank you so much, Annie. So I don't know if, if you know, I, my, my PhD is in philosophy. And mm. so I'm, I'm very excited to discuss this with you because I've mm. only ever studied the extended mind in philosophy of mind classes. Mm. It's really cool to engage your book written for you know for a wider audience and, and your journey into this. I'm just a side question of interest. Were you were you really interested in did we taken by like the idea of the extended mind and embodied cognition? And that's what led you to that journal article. Were you actually flicking through a philosophy journal one day and stumbled on this this article that piqued your interest? Where how you got to this place? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm not sure I could trace back my steps exactly, but I bet that it was through embodied cognition because the embodied cognition is one field that has really started to make an impact on the science of learning and on the way that learning and teaching is practiced. And probably in the course of exploring this idea of embodied cognition, which is the idea that thinking, again, doesn't happen just in the brain, but is is engaged by the entire body that probably led me to to a mention of the extended mind, which I then had to, of course, trace back to its source. Right. Gotcha. Thank you very much. So let's dig in deep then to the kind of the primary area of the extended mind, which is the way in which cognition, you know, i.e. thinking and its impact on our perception of the world comes down to much more than this traditional simplistic top-down view where the brain just runs the rest of the machine, if you like, the, the idea of this, this, in which these embodied machines, the body isn't really doing that much that's significant the brain's just controlling it all could you please kind of we want to dig in deep to this you begin by telling us a bit about how that traditional view thinks a bit dated and what we're finding out now that makes the process of cognition and perception more complex Mm -hmm. yeah i would say that that view that view that mind and body are separate first of all and that idea that mind is somehow elevated above body that it that's where all the important stuff happens and the body is just this sort of grubby animal like conveyance to, to get us around that 
idea, the separation of mind and body, the elevation of mind goes way back in our culture to Descartes and before, but I think it really got embedded in our our modern culture during the cognitive revolution, you know, when we started creating computers, inventing computers, and then comparing our own brains to computers. And that metaphor of brain as computer is so pervasive. It's just a part of the way that we think about our own minds. It's It turns up in the words that we use to describe our our brains and in the kind of expectations that we have for our brains. So when our brains don't behave like computers, we kind of, we feel that our brains are a disappointment, you know, when they don't calculate as exactly as computers or don't remember things as accurately as computers. But of course, our brain isn't a computer. We can take that metaphor way too literally. Our brain is an organic biological organ that is exquisitely adapted to doing what it does. And we need to kind of understand it on its own terms instead of comparing it to a computer. So I I hope that that idea of mind and body being separate and mind not being elevated above the body is is a relic in some ways of of that cognitive science approach to, to understanding thinking in the mind. And that's one that we can move beyond at this point. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. The the metaphor of the mind as a computer has been pernicious and it's often referred to you know philosophy as generating these philosophical confusions and i think you do an excellent job of Mm -hmm. showing why it's pernicious and the ways it's pernicious and so dovetailing off this new understanding of cognition and perception that you're putting forward elaborating your book why do you believe it's important for individuals teams and communities to to understand this notion of the extended minds and how can improve understanding of that the way that we perceive ourselves in relation to the world improve our own lives and the lives of others Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I want to go back to that, what we were just talking about, this notion that that we're often disappointed in our brains. You know, we often get angry at ourselves for being distracted or not remembering things or not understanding things. And I think that that is an unfortunate consequence of the way that we tend to think about the brain. Again, thinking of it as being like a computer, as a kind of ineffective or defective computer. I think it's important to understand the brain as a biological organ and an evolved organ with a history based in in our evolutionary past that shaped the brain in particular ways and that the things the, the brain evolved to do are quite different from what we expect it to do in our modern life in schools and workplaces and there's a gap and the gap is growing bigger between what the naked brain can do the brain on its own can do the biological brain and what we expect it to do and that that gap can really be transcended by incorporating these outside the brain extra neural resources. We need the extended mind because it's the only way we're going to sort of rise to the moment, to the demands of our our very complex culture. So instead of sort of getting angry at ourselves for for not being able to keep up with the demands of our of our very demanding kind of culture or assuming that maybe there's something wrong with our brain in particular i think it's really helpful i found it really helpful and useful to to understand that the biological brain is limited you know it's inherently limited by being a biological evolved organ these uni- these limits are universal we all sh- all our brains share them and that the way to transcend those limits is to bring in these outside the brain resources it's i think it's a much more humane kind of approach to to ourselves love that phrasing that's so well said and it teases up perfectly i think to start to kind of double click on each one of these three parts right or these different ways of thinking outside of of the brain 
So if we could, let's let's frame this first by just kind of defining each of the three, and then we can dive in more deeply to each one. So I'll just kind of feed you each of the three, and if you give us a quick definition, and then we'll go into one of them, right? So embodied cognition. Embodied cognition. Yeah, the first third of the book is about thinking with the body, and that encompasses thinking with our internal sensations that are always there. There's a technical term for that called introception, which yep. is is both a wonky technical term that nobody's ever heard of more lately, but and also a phenomenon that we all have experienced every day of our lives. But again, because of this mind-body split, our culture kind of encourages us to tune that out and tune in instead to all the stimuli around us, outside of us. It, embodied cognition also incorporates gestures and physical movements, both of which also become a part of our thinking. I laughed at that a bit because I'm a hand talker. My sister's a huge hand talker, so it made it resonated, made a lot of sense. Situated cognition. Situated cognition has to do with the way that the environment in which we're in affects our thinking. And this is one place where the computer brain metaphor really falls down because a computer operates exactly the same way no matter where it's located. But the human brain is not like that. We are The human brain is exquisitely sensitive to context, to, to the setting in which it's doing its thinking. Great. And then third is distributed cognition. Yeah. So distributed cognition pushes against another really strong current in our culture, which is individualism. The idea that ideas and knowledge and creative work emerge out of out of a single head when really everything we create, everything we think, everything we know is the product of a distributed intelligence in terms of being distributed across many people. Perfect. So let's let's go into that one first, and we'll come back to embodied and, and situated in a little bit here. We just last week had a conversation with Mark Schultz, co-author of The Good Life, new wonderful book on the longest study of happiness. Yeah, and the you know we're kind of giving a spoiler here a little bit, but the big takeaway is relationships matter, right? To basically everything, especially as it pertains to happiness, well-being, flourishing, whatever it might be. So we'd love to tease apart this idea of relationships as it as it pertains to cognition. I think one of the first things you lay out so perfectly, it, it makes me think of Sean Acor and Big Potential and the story about fireflies and those sorts of things, is things that would be impossible for us to do alone are possible when we're leveraging distributed cognition. So we tell us a little bit more about that. Of, of course, we're going to ask you kind of some how-to questions as well. Sure. Yeah. The very last chapter in the book is about thinking with groups, which is something that a lot of us have tuned into in a new way during the pandemic, because the connections among us became both more tenuous, you know, as we were separated from each other and all had to leave our workplaces and all the rest. But also as we had to consciously kind of create new ways of working together, the way that you, I'm talking to you guys over, over Zoom. So Groupiness, which is an actual scientific term, I was very happy to to discover. Uh, groupiness refers to the state in which a, a, an assemblage of people manages to become one entity, not a collection of individuals, but a thing unto itself. And there are ways to create a sense of groupiness that then leads to a more effortless and efficient and effective kind of group thinking. And of course, there's again because of our culture's emphasis on individualism, there's a lot of fear and skepticism and suspicion of, of groupthink, of group thinking. But 
that is just sort of the necessary dark side to a phenomenon that we absolutely need. I'm talking about, you know, groups of people thinking together that we absolutely need more than ever because again, our complex culture has created such specialized knowledge, so much, such an abundance of knowledge that no one person can really, it's very difficult for one single person to create things, anything on their own anymore. It's, it's a group effort. Yeah. This idea of collective intelligence, as you described in the book, right? So how do we do that? (laughs) Well, not to um, denigrate the usefulness and the convenience of platforms like the one we're on, but it really turns out to be very helpful for people to be in the same place at the same time, engaged in the same activity. This is what makes a group an entity. So the more we can learn and train together have meaningful and even emotional experiences together and also engage in rituals together, which can be as something as simple as sharing a meal or taking a walk together. You know, it turns out that synchronized movement actually tends to get people on the same page cognitively. And I find it so interesting that, you know, even in this very complex and modern world that we're living in, we're still animals, you know, who who relate to each other on this very visceral level. And it's, we can't forget that when we're trying to think about how to, how to think together and come together in groups. That's beautiful. It makes me think Brene Brown, collective moments, you mentioned synchronicity, right? You know, the you're at a concert and the the singer stops singing and the entire crowd takes over. You get the, you know, the butterflies or the heebie-jeebies. Also why yeah. it's important to show up to funerals and those sorts of things. Yeah. On a maybe even simpler level, I guess, a one-to-one level is, uh, are other good examples, mentorships, coaching relationships, right? Those sorts of things that really help us level up in ways we other otherwise would not have been able to. Is that also distributed cognition, if you will? That is, that is. And it's somewhat more complicated and challenging than I think we've we've sometimes recognized because this model of having an expert teach a novice is so embedded in our culture. I mean, that's mm. the basis of every kind mm. of education and workplace training program. And what we haven't always understood until recently or worked with until recently is the fact that experts by virtue of being experts think differently from novices. So it's, we often, I think, unfairly blame the novice, the learner for not getting it when really it's the job of the expert to lay out, break down their expertise and their knowledge in such a way that it becomes legible to the, to the novice. And this is an expression of the extended mind because of how much that involves getting the experts' thought patterns and thought structures and expertise out of their heads somehow and in a form that the novice can can access, you know, in a kind of apprenticeship way in which apprentice, you know, masters used to be able to sort of show their apprentices exactly what their trade consists of. We need to adapt that to a world in which most of what we're learning and teaching about is is internal knowledge is cognitive and inside the head more of a shared language it sounds like it makes me think again just spending so many years in education and in particular in high schools the teachers often with the greatest expertise really struggled to get their language into a place where it was consumable by the teenagers mm-hmm. just really really difficult for and probably for many of the reasons you're outlining here because it's it's so much second nature to them, precisely yeah. because they are they have they're such past masters at what they do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good segue into situated cognition in some ways. That's a an excellent description. Thank you very much, Annie. Of distributed cognition, thinking about relationships. We still have these other two: embodied cognition, 
thinking with our bodies and situating cognition, thinking with our surroundings. And I mean, I, I just try to tease out, you know, in the explanation of what exactly this is, I was wondering if this is an example actually from from Andy Clark and David Chalmers' paper, where they talk about Otto, who <laughs> suffers from Alzheimer's, and he relies on information in his environment to structure his life. He carries a notebook around with him everywhere he goes. So he learns something new, he writes it down. When he needs more information, he looks it up. It's the mm-hmm. notebook there, they argue, plays the role usually mm-hmm. played by biological memory. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's an, you know, an example given by Chalmers and Clark of an extended mind, the sense in which it's an extension of Otto's memory. Is that the kind of thing you mean here by situated cognition? In part, yes. And um, your reference to that part of the paper, John, reminds me of just one of my favorite things about the way the the idea of the extended mind came into the world, that when that idea was introduced in 1998, it was widely kind of scoffed at, you know, within philosophy and probably not even noticed anywhere else. And a fellow philosopher, Ned Block, liked to say that the theory of the extended mind was false when it was written, but subsequently became true because a few years after the paper came out, the iPhone was introduced, you know, and all of a sudden, all of us were auto, you know, all of us were storing parts of our, our brains, our minds in our phones. And it became not just plausible, but almost self-evident that like this tool that is part of our our immediate surroundings and often always within within reach is a part of our minds and has and should be treated as such and regarded as such. Well, we're I'd be remiss if it didn't point out we're sitting here in the midst of just the explosion of chat GPT and other AI tools. And and you know, it occurs to me the phrase you use a lot of times in, in AI, which is a second brain, right? Literally mm-hmm. just kind of mm-hmm. offloading some of these things and processes in incredible ways. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I actually, I mean, of course we do, we do extend our minds with our technology a lot, but I tend to find myself more interested in the more analog ways that we extend our minds. Mm. And that, that really is, I think, very tightly connected to situational cognition in the sense that when we get our our ideas and our thoughts out of our heads onto paper, onto whiteboards, onto even like a multi-monitor setup for our computer. That has benefits for our cognition that we don't get when we leave those that information inside our heads. And that's another way that our culture kind of trips us up, I think, because it's so values and valorizes, you know, being able to do things in our heads. That's a sign of a real genius or a real master, you know, but in fact, getting our ideas and our thoughts outside of our heads as much as we can, and then interacting with them as if they're a 3D landscape or as if they're material objects that we can manipulate. You know, these are the things that the brain finds very easy and effortless to do. So we want to do that as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, friends. Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most, of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators 
to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well-being and anti-fragility. The ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division I programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com. Okay, so you like this analog way of doing, you know, of thinking about this in terms of pens and paper and so on and write, maybe writing things down. But as you said, I didn't quite get to the crux of situated cognition with that example from Chalmers and Clark's paper. So what else is involved in situated cognition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the section in the book on thinking with spaces actually starts with natural spaces right. um, being outside, you know, which again takes us back to this point about the brain being an evolved organ, biological organ that evolved in a certain kind of setting, which was the outdoors, this life that we live now where we're inside a house or a car, you know, or an office building upwards of 90% of the time is a very unusual situation. Evolutionarily speaking, we used to spend, you know, our ancestors evolved in the outdoor, being in the outdoors all the time. And as a result, the kind of information and stimuli that you encounter when you're outside is very easy and effortless for the brain to process. And I think we we kind of intuitively know that, that when we go outside, we find there's something about that that's very relaxing and refreshing, but there's actually a scientific theory behind that known as attention restoration theory, which suggests that, proposes that the kind of attention that we have to devote to our work when we're in our office or, you know, working at home is very sharp edged attention that really drains our attentional resources very quickly. And the best way to restore our attentional resources to sort of refill the tank of our attention, so to speak, is to go outside and spend a few minutes just sort of engaging in that kind of diffuse attention that is encouraged by being outside where you're just kind of in a very diverting, very pleasantly diverting way, just kind of paying attention to what's around you, but but not in that focused, hard-edged way. And so when we think about situations and settings, I think, you know, nature and being outdoors is one of the first ones we need to to think about. Default mode instead of executive attention, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Okay. Great. Thank you very much, Annie. So let's now dig into this third one. So thinking with our bodies, embodied cognition. Yeah. And that's sort of, you know, I started the book there because that's where it all begins. I conceptualized the book as kind of circles extending outward and and really where it all starts is, is the body. And yet the body has been so completely neglected in our school systems and our workplace. So our culture really expects us to sort of, in some sense, leave the body behind when we go to school, when we, um, when we're working, you know, and, and I think that's only been accentuated by this new kind of world of remote work where we are literally like brains in boxes, heads in boxes, you know, but in fact, the body has a lot to contribute to intelligent thought. I mentioned interoception earlier, you know, this tuning into what this, this constant stream of internal signals that really carry a lot of, a lot of knowledge and expertise that is not available to our conscious mind. So we really have to go through the body to get access to that. And then in addition, when and where we can incorporating physical movement, including gesture into our intellectual work can enhance our our ability to think intelligently. So I don't, I don't, 
I think we really need to get past this idea that the body has nothing intelligent to contribute to to mental work. Mm. I think it was one of the first times I became familiar with you and your work, listening to a podcast, ironically, walking down the beach in, in Michigan, where I'm from. Made, so maybe that was facilitating my cognition. But you said something at that point that I just never really thought about. It just made so much sense, which is the brain doesn't really get anything or generate anything on its own. It receives mm-hmm. everything from sensory experiences, right? So when I heard that, I thought, well, well, duh, that of course this makes sense, this idea of body cognition, right? So the science makes a lot of sense. Just when you you laid it out that way, it makes a lot of sense. What I'm always struggling with is how. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned hand talking, right? So, okay, if, if I'm coaching an athlete or I'm working on a talk or whatever it might be, and I know the research that says like, as long as you can move around your hands like I am right now, it's going to facilitate cognition, verbal fluency, those sorts of things. So I guess I just should just not tie their hands behind their back, right? And I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but... How do you leverage some of these things? Maybe we can dive into how do you do interoception well, but I Mm -hmm. think there's other elements that you're bringing up here that I really want to kind of wrestle that how-to apart with. Yeah. Well, I love your point, which Nick, which maybe I made first, I don't know, about how the brain is basically, it's sealed inside this black box, right? It doesn't have any direct contact with the outside world. And to me, that is, is brought home especially by the situation in which two brains are trying to to understand each other. You know what I mean? There's there's a sort of a double challenge in terms of accessing the state of mind of other people. And that's where something called social interoception comes in, wherein Mm. um, we can use our own body as a kind of channel to understand what somebody else is feeling. And it turns out that psychotherapists are, are experts at this. They read off from their own body feelings, states of mind, emotions that seem to be communicated from the their client or their patient. And the way that happens is that when we talk to another person, we're very subtly mimicking their facial expression, their posture, their gestures, you know, and so we start to feel a little bit of what they are feeling. And that becomes the most direct and accurate way of sensing what somebody else is feeling because otherwise their brains are just, they're they're really a black box. There's no way for us to know what they're thinking and feeling beyond what they tell us. Well, that's, so that's super interesting. It makes me think of, I heard Dr. Leia Lagos once talk about how kind of an ability to tune in with another person's heart rate or heart rate variability, right? And I, I don't remember if there was a technical term, but the way you just described that makes a lot of sense. John, I'm looking at you. I mean, Annie, just for for context, John is a former professional musician, talk a lot about group flow, right? And I would I'm wondering, John, like, is that something that you really resonate with? This what was the term? Social interoception? Yes, social interoception. Do you feel like, John, you can physically feel what your bandmates are feeling when you get into that flow state? Yeah, a, I love that question. That's a great question. And I, and I shouldn't be, <laughs> I'm not the guest being interviewed here, but like a brief, you know, comment on that uh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. When someone's taking a solo, for example, in an, an improvised jazz group or something, and you can feel maybe the emotion they're trying to express or where they're trying to take it. And there's a collective energy when, you know, when, when things are 
cooking, if you like. I remember the amount of times that bandmates would turn to each other after and thought, that was cooking or something like that. And you can just feel that. And, and everyone, and even the audience sometimes feels it. And they start kind of cheering during like a, a saxophonist, like ripping out some awesome solo. There's a kind of a collective emotional experience where you can feel where it's going and you want to kind of encourage it further. And so it's kind of a collective mental state but also in a collective emotional state. And this this energy is infused without one another, you know, among one another. Yeah, I, I feel that. I, I feel we're on the same page here. Let's let's keep going with this thing. Yes. And a synchronized physical state too. It turns out that people's heartbeats get synchronized when they're in that, in that kind of group synchrony, which is just amazing. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned psychotherapists are really good at this. I just kind of stick with this, you know, social interoception for a second, then we maybe come back to the individual lens. Is that just, you know, their propensity? Are they sort of naturally, you know, ordained with some of those gifts? Do you think they're, they practice them? Is there a way to practice it? Yes, actually, that's a really interesting question. It's probably a bit of both that people who are more interoceptively attuned who can who sense their own internal sensations more acutely are more uh, empathetic but they literally feel other people's pain you know more acutely and interestingly doctors as part of their training actually have to learn to to turn that off because if they felt pain mm. every time they gave someone a shot or a surgeon you know opened someone up they wouldn't be able to do their job so this is a capacity that we can tune up or turn down, it turns out that one of the most effective ways to cultivate our own interoceptive attunement is through mindfulness. And in particular, the body scan, body um, scanning. Yeah. where you're paying close attention, non-judgmental, open-minded, curious attention to whatever is going on in your body. But that, that can actually not only make us more attuned to ourselves, but also more attuned to other people. Okay. So well, there's a good segue probably to the just the individual interoceptive piece as well. You would recommend mindfulness in general, but in particular, if our listeners don't know, specific type of mindfulness practice or even meditation called body scanning, increasing bodily awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Another technique that people might want to try is keeping an interoceptive journal. Mm. This idea actually came out of, believe it or not, the the investing world where often decisions, especially on a trading floor, um, have to be made so quickly that the conscious mind, it's really too slow to keep up. But uh, so very successful traders learn to rely on their gut. You know, I mean, that's like a pretty common turn of phrase or colloquialism. But what that's really referring to is our interoceptive capacity, you know, our capacity to tune into non-conscious knowledge that gets expressed through cues in the body that, again, are, are, are coming at us too fast for the conscious mind to process. So we actually um, can be, and, and the idea of an interoceptive journal is that we can sort of track our interoceptive sensations when we make decisions about investing, for example, and then track those investments, see how they do and go back and see if our interoception was kind of steering us right. Because it's not as if interoception is always going to, um, to give us accurate or correct information. I mean, when people experience panic attacks, for example, that's actually their interoception going haywire and getting over overly excitable in response to stimuli that really don't that really don't demand that kind of response. So it's not as if interoception is infallible. It's just that it's a, it's another stream of information that it, it would be good to for us to attend to. It makes me think of Richard Wiseman's work. Have you read any of Richard Wiseman, The Luck Factor? 
He's mm, a, it's a, like the that. coolest title I've ever heard. He's a luck scientist. And I was started teaching his stuff, I don't know, maybe a decade ago. He's been at it for a while. But in his his first book, which, you know, there's a free PDF that summarizes it. I'm not giving anything away. But he argues that generally lucky people actually share four common traits. Just real quickly for the listeners, three of them are that they notice and take chances. So they're they're optimistic. They put themselves out there. They create self-fulfilling prophecies by starting with positive expectations. They're resilient. They're able to transform bad luck into good when stuff doesn't go their way. But the fourth, which is what you know, you just, I think, reference is that they trust their gut. They follow their intuition. And that people who seem to more often than not trust their gut also seem to correlationally be, quote unquote, luckier. And sounds mm. like that's what you're describing. Of course, my, my question, again, is like, how do you trust your gut? How do you tap into that? So I don't, I don't know if you have additional thoughts on the how-to piece. Yeah. Well, what that makes me think of some interesting work on how emotion is constructed, that it's really constructed mm. out of these basic building blocks of our physical sensations and that we can intervene at the stage at which our, our emotions are being put to, assembled and put together. And what I mean by that is this very same physical sensations attend being nervous and scared as being excited and, you know, really right. eager to have some experience like going on a roller coaster or something like that. And it's actually just a matter of the frame that we put on it and the way we put those sensations together, the way we interpret them that makes us feel scared, excited on the one hand and scared on the other. So uh, this actually is something I do now, and I find that it really works that when I am nervous about something like public speaking, what we tend to do, or what I used to do was to tell myself, calm down, calm down, which doesn't work, you know, because your body is preparing you for this challenge with these sensations. And to tell yourself, just don't feel those things is not going to work. But if you can reframe the sensations that you are actually experiencing by saying, I'm so excited, I'm so psyched up for this, it sounds silly, but it actually really works. It changes the meaning of the experience. Well, so that's that's the interesting connected thread with some of the other research that I mentioned. And, you know, there's different interpretations or arguments about this, but I mentioned Leia Lagos, some of the stuff around heart rate variability. What you just mentioned is classic cognitive behavioral technique, right? Reframe, play with the thoughts, dispute the thoughts. She's arguing that you can enhance your ability to reframe and do some of that perspective taking through the practice of something like resonance breathing and amplifying HRV because it facilitates blood flow to the prefrontal cortex. And so it actually makes you, it's, it's the best of both worlds. It's sort of that top down and bottom up from what it sounds like. Right. I'm just kind of making this connection right now, but super interesting. Mm, yeah. I like that. Thank you so much, Annie, for these fantastic answers. So I just wanted to kind of tease apart with an example, kind of some of the ways in which these types of cognition kind of, overlap in our everyday lives and and you know just to maybe get away from the idea that someone just thinks their body or just thinks their surroundings or just thinks their relationships of course you're not you know you're not claiming that but just to, to kind of bring them out a bit more and i'm actually indebted to a friend of mine a close friend of mine called peter dennis for this example when we once discussed the extended mind a number of years ago he gave me this quote the american painter robert motherwell once said most good painters don't know what they think until they paint it and when i read that i'm thinking okay Robert's thinking with his body, you know, the, the act of the brush strokes. He's thinking with his surroundings, obviously, depending on what he's painting. The canvas, obviously, immediately when painting on a canvas, but also if he's painting a landscape or still life, whatever objects are there. 
perhaps not think of the relationship there unless, you know, painting a, a life drawing, let's say, another human being or a portrait. So with an example like that or another one, can we kind of tease out maybe in everyday life how there's just this mesh of all three, perhaps, and, and perhaps it's not possible to separate them out. They're always enmeshed in this kind of way. Maybe you have your own kind of examples to, to better illustrate that. Yeah, that's a great question because I, of course, I I drew them out and and separated them in order to address each one sequentially in the book. But in fact, these outside the brain resources are probably both most effective when we layer them. You know, and my favorite example of that would be something like talking over something that you're working on with a friend as you walk outside. You know, so you're getting physical movement, you're getting nature and the attention restoration effect, and you're getting this social distributed cognition. So, you know, it makes me think of a really great phrase from Andy Clark, one of the originators of the extended mind, who says that human beings are intrinsically loopy creatures, meaning that the way that our particular biological intelligence works, our human intelligence is different from a computer in that for whatever reason, it enhances our thinking to loop it out of our head and through some other entity, whether that's through our bodies, through the brains of other people, through our physical surroundings. And each time we kind of create a cognitive loop like that, our thinking gets enriched and enhanced. Whereas if it just stays inside our head, which is what our culture kind of encourages us to do, it stays inert and unimproved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Love that. And would you argue that there isn't really... So in I, I listened ahead of this, you know, interview a few days ago at the weekend. Loved your interview with Scott Barry Coffin on the Psychology Podcast, where he asked you the question: you know, is there can you just have thought without any of the extended cognition in the world, as it were, just a, a pure thought, like you know, just wow. solving something in arithmetic, and, and that's it. And you are, you said that never happened. You would argue that never happened. I mean, I know that you put you on the spot there, so I mean, maybe you don't think that now, but uh, oh, just no, again. I I do agree is with there, Is there any example of like, to, to kind of come back to that question now, is there any, any such thing as non-embodied cognition, non-extended mind thinking, as it were? Yeah, no, it appears that there's not. You know, if you think even just, if we're thinking, we're, we're probably thinking with language or with some kind of set of symbols, which is what mathematics is. And where did we learn that? You know, that was a socially acquired set of symbols and some, a creation of, of humankind, you know, and linguists even think that thinking itself is a kind of internalized conversation, you know, that we we learn to speak with other people and then we sort of import that into our own brain. And, and many of us experience thinking is almost like an internal conversation. So I think it's not possible for thinking not to be social. And I think it's also not possible for thinking not to be embodied just because we we understand everything in terms of reference to our own body. We don't have any place outside our own bodies to understand anything. It's it's always with reference to, to corporeal selves. Right. Yeah. So when we think of like our relationship with ourself, for example, there we are in a in a different sense, I guess, but nonetheless, in some sense, getting into you know distributed cognition yeah. on some. Level. I mean, when we think about higher or lower numbers, you know, we're we're thinking these are these are terms borrowed from our experience with interacting with our bodies interacting with physical space. You know, it's just the fundamental unit of our experience, and there's no there's no way of understanding anything without reference to that. Great, thank you. So it seems just as, as you and John are going back and forth, uh, 
and and you mentioned some examples. I love that quote that you provided too, John. Like the simplistic example for me is like good ideas that come to you when you're in the shower, right? And just taking something that you're wrestling with and then saying, okay, how do I think about this in a different space? Situated cognition. How do I think about this through movement? I used to paint literally a, a wall of my bedroom was whiteboard paint so that I could think through big ideas and move them around and see the step back and see them. Right. And then how do I think about this with others or through others? Right. If we can kind of put these in the bucket. So that, that makes a lot of good sense and sounds like maybe a good nudge for anyone, you know, listening. How do I leverage these different types of cognition? But we also have, and we'll start to wrap on this. So effectively titled, a flourishing question that we ask all of our guests, which is like, what's the one way, not the one way, but a way you had to kind of go to the top of your list to best leverage this idea of the extended mind towards human flourishing, towards helping you improve your life or the life of the people around you. If you had to kind of go to the top of your list, say, I think this is the best action step the average listener can take, what would it be? Hmm. Hmm. The one that really works for me is physical movement. And again, this goes back to the way that our brain understands things through making metaphors, through comparing abstract ideas, rooting them in comparing in a comparison to our our lived experience, you know? And so I think, you know, you can see this in our language when we talk about how, how we're thinking. If we're not thinking so well, we say I'm stuck, I'm in a rut, you know, but if Mm -hmm. things are going well, we say I'm, I'm on a roll, things Mm -hmm. are moving. And so when we, when we orient our bodies in that way first by moving, by having, you know, different sites sort of flowing past us by seeing different perspectives and vantage points, because we're moving through space, that seems to trigger a kind of metaphorical, or corresponding change in our mental state. And we start to think more dynamically, more creatively, more in a more flowy kind of way. And that just always works for me. I just, you know, we have this idea in our culture, as we've been saying, that if you need to get real work done, you should sit alone in a space that's not distracting, you know, which is is basically that back to that brain in a vat kind of idea when really we should be thinking, as you were saying, Nick, of all the different options we have to leverage these outside the brain resources to help us think. Mm, love that. Well said. It's perfect. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Annie. So where can our listeners learn more about you and your work? They can go to my website, which is www.anniemurphypaul.com or find me on Twitter with my handle is Annie Murphy Paul. I've started recently writing a lot about creativity, which has, of course, a lot of overlaps with the extended mind, but that's that's what I'm thinking about these days. And I'd love to chat with people about it. Cool. Well, once you do write on it, we'd be happy to have you back. And I'd love to have you back a second time at some point to talk uh, the cult of personality as well. Oh, that's, yeah. a, that's a very interesting, and I think, sensitive topic and something that, that John and I both have an interest in exploring further. Yeah. Now, that goes way back, but it's the personality tests are still with us. I did not yep. any, <laughs> eliminate yep. the, you know, I did my best to kind of sow some doubt about them, but uh, they're still going strong. That's for sure. Yeah. You were ahead of the curve. But yeah, they're, they're a tough uh, beast to tame. For sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So great. Well, Annie, we're, listen, we really appreciate the time and, and the knowledge and expertise. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Oh, thank you guys. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. 
Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five-star review. Uh, You can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, We've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.